I read the Consumer Reports article, um, and you know, general stories. Just you know, you noticed that, or I guess Thomas may have noticed that. Uh, the, the the author of the story noticed that by you know opting out of things, he kept seeing ads for things that he said he had opted out out of, and I and I thought it was pretty interesting because um, I, I my wife always says you know I'll she'll say something she'll have a conversation with somebody about something really mm-hmm. random like this type of cracker, right? <laughs> and and you know moments later she gets an ad on Facebook about that cracker. She never Googled it never said anything about it she just she just talked about it with somebody yeah. um which is a which is a very very dramatic way of saying like these this sort of tracking is very invasive maybe in ways that either you're being explicitly told that it's not doing or in ways that you never thought were even necessarily technologically possible um <laughs> so i guess um to start maybe a little introduction about yourself boltive and and how you know boltive helps to, to maybe combat some of this invasive tracking yeah, sure. I think we we um, we all have, I think, our own stories, experiences about feeling like we're being spied on um, or that ads seem to know what we're thinking. And uh, and sometimes that's real and sometimes it's perceived. Um, I, I had my own story with that, which kind of kind of drew me into this. I've been a marketer since the beginning of my career and then I got into general management, but I really began in marketing. So I have a belief in advertising and a belief in marketing and targeting. Well, until you're the subject of some of that targeting, you change your mind. My my um, wife was diagnosed with cancer one day and I had no experience with cancer. So I started doing all this internet research and I started to have that experience similar to what you're describing, Mike, where I'm starting to see ads and um, I'm starting to see not just not just um, generic ads, but really specific ads about specific treatments um, and some of them were shady treatments. Um, some of them were these sort of dramatic, cartoonish um, reflections of, of of cancer. And I realized that I was being profiled and tracked online from what I was reading in the papers I was downloading about cancer treatments. And so that really changed my view of of targeting and the the abusive nature that some sometimes targeting can cause. And um, that's you know that's called what politicians have, have deemed surveillance advertising um, in the profession it's sometimes called data leakage but um, that's the invasion that we're in and the reasons because many people having experiences like what I described why we're seeing so many regulations really the, the biggest regulatory change the world has ever seen with so many international laws moving in the same direction at once sure yeah yeah it's interesting with the you know I think there's been a debate about privacy sort of in the in the public forum for for yeah. a long time now um and you know there's really i mean there's multiple camps but but really two sides of a coin you've got people and and i sort of feel this way but understand the other side in that you know from a privacy perspective you know people say like oh i have nothing to hide or if there's invasive ads they're serving you things that you're looking for so it's good but i think in those situations you have people who they might not be affected by the invasive ads, but but they but you can't discount the fact that people like yourself have experiences that are different than yours, and and even if they're serving you ads that are relevant to the things that you've been searching for, that still can come with these unintended consequences and things that are that that negatively affect your you know your I mean your general experience in life, but your your 
experience on, on the computer or wherever you're being served these ads, despite the fact that you may have been looking for them. Not to mention the fact that you maybe in, in many cases pur purposefully opted out of things, which, yeah. so it's a, it's a little right. offensive if you're being, if you're asking not to be tracked and you're being tracked anyways, um, that's, even if, even if it doesn't result in something that's, you know, harms you, it's still like, Hey, I told you not to track me and you're doing it anyways. So it seems, you know, it, it, it it's an icky feeling if nothing else. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, and it's now not legal. So I, I, I think I skipped over in the introduction part, Mike, but, but with the story I was telling you a moment ago, that's what led me to join uh, uh, Boltiv as CEO to really um, to run a business that is trying to, um, protect those consent rights. And what you're describing is very, very common. People opt out, but our statistics and our software shows about a third of the time those opt-out signals get lost down the chain of vendors because it's not a single company. It's the, the, the world, the web that we experience today and the advertising bid stream has so many vendors and technologies that have to interoperate and sometimes they get it right, but about a third of the time they don't and signals get dropped. And it, someone who's opt out or believes they've opted out may appear to be someone who op has opted in and they get served those ads and their data gets shared contrary to um, their preferences. And it used to not matter, right? When the, the origins of the World Wide Web and the way it was, uh, it was almost viewed as outside the jurisdiction of law that these things would happen and people would shake it off. But with revelations about where that data goes and who's seeing that data and more sensitivity to it. And now laws, right? That kind of behavior of, of not respecting people's opt-outs is, is actually unlawful um, in, it will be five states uh, in 2023 and then a potential federal law too. Sure. Yeah. And so I've done a little bit of, I have a little bit of experience with privacy regulation, namely like GDPR from more on the, the small subset of GDPR that covers sort of the security aspects and less so on, on, on the privacy side. Um, so I have a little bit of knowledge, just generally what, you know, GDPR and, and similar privacy regulations um, mandate, but, but I'm curious, like from whether it be GDPR or any similar regu uh, regulatory body, are, would they use a service like Boltiv to like proactively hunt companies that i don't know if they have something like that or or I, I guess i guess maybe talk a little bit about the customers both of serves um and and sort of how that is maybe used in in like a, a gdpr or like a a privacy regulation context sure yeah so uh, gdpr was the start in 2018 when that came into force, that changed everything around the world because many multinational companies tuned their data privacy to what GDPR was asking for. But then the, the wave just continued. In Brazil, there was LGPD, California passed CCPA, which was later now being modified by CPRA. Um, and um, and those, those aspects kind of followed. Um, but um, I think what what would be most interesting to to uh, to get into would it would you like to, to talk more about uh, the the regulations themselves or the principles or what happens what would what would be most interesting? Well, I'm a little interested uh, just in in how from an investigatory perspective, sure. yeah, you know, when a GDPR inquisition is kicked off, it's because there's some identification of of you know alleged abuse right of of you know the tenants of gdpr by any one of these companies and 
and you know, I've done a little bit of research into precedent GDPR precedent related to security violations, yeah, but less yeah. so privacy. And that's 99% of what you see. But yeah. I, so, I, so I don't really know a lot about how those come to be. Is it specific individuals who come up with this? Are, are there companies like yours that are involved uh -huh. in, in yeah. identification of those uh, you know, failures to comply with GDPR and, and those get spun up. Um, yeah, I think, well, I'll, I'll, let's, um, I'll talk through generally, then I'll give you an example. Like the, these are investigations, right? So rules are set and um, uh, GDPR tends to be more principles based, whereas the California laws tend to be more specific about thou shalt and thou shalt not do certain things. Sure. And those are specified. California has been really good about sending out enforcement letters, hundreds of them, and then posting on its on their website specific cases without naming companies, um, in most cases, uh, anonymized cases of who did what and how they rectified it so that it, they're examples, real specific examples of what to do and what not to do. And these are investigations. This is law enforcement. They're, um, they're very detail-oriented. Right. They're very precise and they take their time and they make sure they've got strong legal case. So these can take many, many weeks and months. They can come through complaints because there are complaints portals and California has well, a, a well used one. And that can initiate investigations um, or the, the jurisdictions will do things like sweeps and they'll just run across a number of different sites and try to figure out who is um, behaving the worst. And uh, you're asked about how, how our software is used. Our software is used to protect against those investigations and protect against that inadvertent data sharing. Because with very few exceptions, when we experience this and when we serve our clients, it's an inadvertent accidental data error. It's not intentional, right? Most of the time, people are trying to grow their business and trying to protect their users and do the right thing. And then there's a lapse somewhere. And that's what the regulator sees. So we believe most people are acting in good faith and that our software is like an audit to protect against that. Um, we have been approached by uh, more than one regulator about using our software on the prosecution side, almost like a, a radar gun for speeders. So that is out there. But we view ourselves as, uh, as, as a sort of defenders of the commercial side to protect people who are generally doing the right thing and just um, may make um, may, may make mistakes um, accidentally. Yeah, per that. Yeah, perfect explanation. I, I definitely understand. And and that that bit you touched on there, just in terms of being approached by the regulators and being used as sort of a now we can sort of proactively and internet wide hunt for companies that are pot potentially in violation is sort of what I was getting at. And I don't know exactly. I guess it would work, you know, very similarly, um, you know, to to just a, a targeted campaign against a single customer who wants to identify whether they have any sort of lapses in, in, in you know, yeah. how they're managing customer privacy. It, I think it, Mike, I think it would be good to look at a specific example that just happened too. So sure. um, Sephora, what the, the French kind of cosmetic uh, and beauty business that has a good U.S. business too, they were um, uh, the subject of a settlement with California. It was about a $1.2 million settlement for uh, alleged violations of California law. And this was the first announced settlement. What was different about this case was that Sephora did not cure the problem within 30 days. The hundreds of other letters that California sent out, there was reason to believe that the, the other companies targeted took the feedback, made changes, and California was happy with those, so they were never shared publicly. In Sephora's case, for whatever reason, that didn't happen, and the Attorney General's office alleged that Sephora did not honor opt-outs and also sold data to third parties without disclosing that in the privacy policy. 
what was really interesting about, well, how could Sephora not honor opt-outs? It was associated with something called the GPC, the Global Privacy Control. And this is a signal that is given by a browser. And it's, it's intended to be a convenience for consumers. You don't have to opt out of every website. You just turn on a flag and every website should see that flag and opt you out automatically. It sounds like a great idea, right? Well, 90% of US businesses are not ready for that. Sephora happened to be one of them, but it could have been anybody. And that's where, you know, it, 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 these are not ill intent. Uh, you know, Sephora wanted to do what many businesses do, like find more customers, um, use geolocation to find lookalike audiences. They, they were not malicious, but they fell into something that GPC is a rule in California now. And it's also going to be required uh, by Colorado. Uh, in 2024, I believe, and Virginia in 2025, that you need to honor these browser-based signals. Because without that um, demand, the GPC could go the way of do not track, which a few years ago, nobody paid any attention to. So all these do not track signals were for naught. They don't want that to happen with GPC. But I, I just give you that example to show um, that that that's how a case can be prosecuted. And it creates examples. Now, many businesses have changed and are learning to accept global privacy control because it's so clearly something that California is gonna enforce against. And they're also, um, the second part of this, Mike, is the, the definition of, of what is a sale of data. The prevailing uh, uh, interpretation of many companies is that a sale is when I give you something and you give me money back. Well, California in this case, and through prior rulemaking said, any exchange of value counts as a sale. So if you're bartering data for data or data for free service, that's also a sale and you can be um, fined or you can be penalized for doing that. That was another lesson that came out of Sephora that I think changed the mindset of what um, of how the term sale was being interpreted by many companies. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I, um, you know, just keying on, on California or other states that are adopting these stronger privacy laws, when it, and in, in, I guess in, to the extent that you have a company that is based somewhere in the world, not California, right? Yes. I, it could be US based, could be based in Europe. And they, what would be their ability to refuse to comply with privacy law that is mm -hmm. mandated in California, but maybe not so, maybe not in other states? Yeah, Could they... there, there, yeah, there are, there are thresholds, um, and I wish I knew them. I wish I had to memorize, but I, I would probably misquote them. But there are thresholds of having a certain number of records on a certain number of individuals or households in each state. Then you would be subject to the jurisdiction of those states. Um, but uh, you know, it, the the web is so broad that it can on the on the flip side, it can be hard to say that you don't have any. Um, presence in Europe, under GDPR definitions, companies may trigger that more early and in, in a smaller scale than they realize. That you, by being on the internet, you're gonna find, by having customers in those jurisdictions, you may find yourself subject to those laws. Sure. Yeah, I just, I, I think of nations having the capability, both technologically and and just from a nation perspective of, of stopping an organization from doing business there altogether. but. If Virginia wants to do business with a company because they don't have the same laws in place that California does, 
the you know state yeah. versus federal law sort of, sort of makes it a little bit trickier i think a little stickier but i'm not oh it sure. does yeah yeah and we are headed for a patchwork of us privacy laws it's we were close in the summer of 2022 with a national privacy law called the adppa that made it out of committee and was going to be brought to a house floor vote well nancy pelosi did not allow that to proceed because of the concern that it was going to be less protective than the california laws that were already in place so that didn't make it anywhere it's unlikely that's going to get revived again because there's so many other issues that have taken higher precedence so we're going to be in a, in a patchwork where states one by one are going to initiate their own laws i think the best we can hope for is that they tend to follow some of the same principles and we're seeing a little bit of that california colorado and connecticut are similar in certain ways um uh virginia's a little bit different utah's a little bit different but each state that that is added they could they may be maybe more pro-consumer or more pro-business and the hope is that you don't have to optimize for every single state but there'll be certain principles that can run across states so as a business you just need to pick which principles are the most conservative and then map to those sure yeah it'll be interesting to see where that goes i mean there's i mean this is somewhat unrelated but related in the fact that it's you know how do diff how are different states dealing with with sort of the regulation and law around around the internet right now but you've got you know certain states that that you know have threatened like you know that we don't want to allow the use of like twitter or something you know text yeah. you know just based on i guess maybe drawing a line on like political free speech ideals but you know similarly state law you know the the the, the people who enforce the laws and make laws in these states are going to have different opinions on on you know the value of consumer privacy so it's it's going to be sort of a battle there yeah yeah it's is i think virginia's viewed a little bit more pro-business utah is viewed a little bit more pro-business the other states are viewed as a little bit more pro-consumer but then you have things like virginia has an opt-in regime around sensitive data and sensitive data is a lot of demographic information but it can be you know religion gender ethnicity race, um, sexual orientation, all those sorts of things that marketers use for targeting because <laughs> they want to market to those certain audiences. But the privacy advocates say that can be exclusionary. Well, Virginia has a protection that you must opt in as a consumer um, before any business can share sensitive data. That's even more, I would say, pro-consumer than the generally viewed pro-consumer laws in California, Colorado, um, and and Connecticut, although I would say Colorado, I think has the same principle as Virginia, the opt-in. Other than that, we're an opt-out country. We're a country where the assumption is I'm going to target you and I'm going to use your data unless you tell me not. Um, that Virginia clause is 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 different, and that is much more like GDPR, where GDPR is is you cannot target until somebody opts in. So that there are some principles which kind of reflect i guess a little bit more of the embrace of capitalism in north america than uh than in europe sure yeah so one thing you had mentioned and this is more now getting into like some of the and i actually do want to i do actually want to get into some of uh the the technical under underpinnings of of yeah. the bolt of platform but you mentioned a, a new directive um that browsers would initiate to yeah. you know to, to web servers to, to any of these platforms to say not to track is that something that's being sent via cookie http header how is that exactly being sent that particular protocol there's the gpc there's the adpc in europe um how that particular protocol works 
I, I'm not going to be able to explain coherently uh, to your audience, but um, the, the, it is a standard that um, is under global privacy control. You can look that up. Um, it, I, it goes beyond cookies is my understanding, but I'm not sure exactly the technical protocol there. Yeah, I'll have to Google it and just look into it myself. Um, I actually don't, I don't even really know the do not disturb directive. How is that? Or not do not do, but do not track. How is that sent? I think it's, it's it's using the same, it's using the same flag. Um, It's using the same method as as far as I understand it, but, but now it needs to be taken seriously with uh, global privacy control. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like browsers can send like their own browser signature via HTTP header. So I would assume it would be something yeah. HTTP header related. But and I don't really know what else a browser can really send other than tacking on. But maybe there's something. Um, yeah. Anyways, so I was reading a little bit about how Boltive works. Um, mm-hmm. and so and and I'll try to explain it, but then you can much better explain it. But essentially, a a specialized browser that simulates a real person and uh you know in a sandbox environment will sandbox it in a way that it's it's isolated right an isolated instance of of a imaginary person goes out simulates real web traffic and you know produces findings based based on some logic that you guys have built into the platform so that's my understanding if i'll let you fill in any parts or or correct anything i may have sure yeah so the, the the primary thing to understand i think is that we um your your description's right on like we simulate real people going through real customer journeys and the the value of that is that we can have two personas going down the same place at the same time with one being an opt-in and one being an opt-out one saying go ahead and share my data and one saying do not share my data and then we can test all the systems to make sure they're they're operating properly is consent collected is consent passed um, to the ad server? Is the is consent passed downstream to supply side platforms and the other intermediaries in the chain? Do ads come back? Does retargeting happen when it's not supposed to? Who is seeing this data? So all that stuff becomes very visible to us forensically as a result of that. But the two primary areas we're looking into are online ads and page tags, because online ads especially programmatic targeted ads, fund the open web. That's how we get to see free content. And so that's you know 80 to 90% of all the news we read is paid for by this. And then digital objects uh, enable commerce on the open web, the analytics tags, the measurement tags, and, and other things of that nature. And um, so, but, but both online ads and on-page digital objects can sell or share data, which under the new laws that we're talking about violates rights. And so we want the, the Boltive software, both Boltive Privacy Guard checks out both of those, what's happening on the page and what's happening downstream, because many times businesses are doing things the right way, but many times the weakness and the vulnerability is in their third party vendors. And it's that that consent chain for all these intermediaries in the middle that make the web work that we don't necessarily have as household names. That's where the weakness is. So that's why it's, it's so important to know where where did that um uh, where did that uh, consent signal get dropped? At what node did it get dropped? So we can get the message to that operator that they need to correct for that error. Sure. So just so I understand in terms of a consent chain, if, and maybe there's multiple, maybe it's a spectrum and, and cause I'm sort of thinking about it in a binary way, but if you've asked a website 
right? A, a company to not track your, you know, what you do or, or store your data or whatever it may be at the, I mean, there's, what would be the consent chain beyond that? I mean, if they, if, if you've already asked for them not to do it, they shouldn't have it. And therefore none of the third parties should as well. Mm, Is yeah. That- yeah. So let me give you a couple examples. One is from the publisher or retailer example, the sellers of ads, and then we can talk about the buyers of ads, but for the sellers of ads, when you go to you know pick uh, pick pick a website that you where you consume news content and they're going to sell advertising when you visit that site and you opt out of data of data sharing then it's all those parties that are involved in serving ads on that website that need to get that signal it so in other words it's the out of the hands of the publisher it's in the hands of the intermediaries, the ad tech companies that need to honor that. And that's where the breakdown happens, that the, the, the publisher may say, here you go, here's a, here's a user, but they've opted out, they've elected to not have their data shared. Therefore, retargeted ads are not welcome on my site for that person. And for that to be recognized and honored by the supply side platforms, of which a publisher will have several, um, the demand side platforms, which will also be various, and all the way down to the buyer of the ads, there's a, a four-digit string uh, in the U.S. It's called the U.S. Privacy String, although it's going to change next year. In Europe, there's a GDPR string, but that string tells everybody down the chain what to do with that user. And it's very easy for that signal to get lost or corrupted or digits to be dropped because there's so many technologies that have to interface in really 20 to 50 milliseconds for the ad request to go out and for the ad to be served back. So it's, it's, it's very possible that that one little element of the string, the, the US privacy string can get lost. And through no fault of the publisher, um, a consent failure happens and an ad gets served. A similar thing can happen on the ad buyer side. But if you're, a, uh, if you're an ad buyer, you're not off the hook just because the ad is being served on a publisher site, because that's your brand to that consumer and Consumers can also go to brand sites and opt out of the sale and share of their information there. So without getting overly complicated, it is a two-sided problem. The ad sellers and the ad buyers both need to to, uh, abide by this. But the reason it breaks down is because those consent signals get lost in transmission between dozens and dozens of ad tech companies that need to authentically honor that in order for the message to get through that a user should not have their data shared. Yeah, awesome. Um, how long does it take? Just and and obviously, since this is what your platform specializes in, how long does it take for those signals to propagate and for you to start seeing? Okay, well, now it's popping up in these ad delivery and you know endpoints, and and now the Bolted platform is is identifying, like you you said, forensically, um, you know where. Since since you know this is a simulated user, it doesn't exist anywhere else. So so you know this you know you shouldn't and it hasn't been anywhere else, right? Its existence has literally been from the point we started the the simulation to now. Um, how long does that typically take to start seeing where it's popping out? Yeah, it tends to be right away for on-page digital digital objects. So as I mentioned, analytics tags, measurements, measurement tags, CRM tags. We we see that right away. With online ads, it it can be quick. It depends on how much ad buying is going on at that moment. 
um, because sometimes there's a hiatus and data is is not shared because there's no ads to be shown at that point in time. We're you know, right in, in the fourth quarter right now where there tends to be a lot more advertising. So we tend to see that result more quickly. But um, we can see right away when there's a mismatch between the consent and then the honoring of that consent by an on-page you know, pixel or beacon. Okay. Um, I, I recently took a, a, a course on open source intelligence in the context of, of doing security investigations of, of you know, companies, regardless of, I guess, your reason for doing it, but I guess the spirit of it is your uh, security professional who wants to perform some level of open source intelligence against the company you work for. Uh, in order mm-hmm. to, to secure, you know, their external facing perimeter, et, et cetera. Um, one thing I learned about in that course was this concept of sock puppet. So creating a simulate, uh, a, 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 you know, a fake persona on the internet um, in order to, I mean, for a lot of different reasons. Um, mm-hmm. and, and in many cases, those personas can be long lived in order to, you know, conduct certain types of investigation simulations. And so reading this consumer reports article, it sounded very similar to that. And I, and I, and I can't think of all the ways that, or anyway, off the top of my head, cause it's, I'm just blanking on it, but ways that prior to creating these sock puppets and using them in certain ways, it, it, you could be, you could be crossing, uh, like a legal boundary. So in, in the case where you're creating an, uh, a, a simulated user for the purpose of investigating a opt out for a company that's contracted you to do so that I can't imagine why that would be legal in any way, but for, for some of the th- ways that you might be using it for research purposes, just on the broader internet, I'm curious if there's anything that you've looked into to, you know, there's certain areas where you have to be careful when simulating fake users on the internet. Yeah. Well, it is the safer way to go. I mean, the the alternative is to hire a bunch of real users to test out systems and see if their data gets shared. But then what do you do if you find out that users data is shared? That's a legal violation. What do you do with that? Are you supposed to report that even if you're ethically hacking your own or ethically challenging your own privacy program? The advantage with, we have patents around what we do, but the advantage of our simulated personas is that the data is all simulated. It's like a smoke test for internet pipes. So none of the data is going to be harmful if it leaks anywhere because it's all simulated. It's not a real person, but we can still see those cracks in the pipes where the smoke is getting out and much better that than flammable gas um, that gets pushed through and testing that way. Sure. So that it, it removes a lot of the legal concerns. And we still have to be careful because there are other laws we have to be, stay on the right side of. But it, when it's not real people, when it's not real data, it's a simulation. It makes all of the repercussions a lot easier to deal with. Sure. And in the time that you've been doing this, have you encountered any companies that fall more on the sort of malicious side of this you know, I guess capturing customer data, despite what they might be saying they're doing and then, and then selling that. Um, obviously I, a lot of your business is from people who are trying to do the right thing and just need a better way of, of discovering that, uh, and you know, a way to audit it. Right. And that's where you get, where you guys come in, but have you encountered, and you don't have to name companies, um, but have you encountered anything like that? Yeah, there have unfortunately been those situations that, as I say, for the most part, it's, it's, 
inadvertent, sure. but the kind of information that is made visible through um, real-time bidding, through the auction, through the bid stream, can actually be very useful for foreign intelligence um, operations. So um, that actually takes it to the level of national security issues. In Google was the subject of this in, in April of last year, Google received a letter from a bipartisan group of senators saying that digital ad buying could be used, it could be a gold mine for foreign intelligence. Then as it turned out in June, Google was indeed sharing data accidentally, um, but the part, the receiver of this data was not accidental at all. It was a company called RuTarget, which was a sanctioned Russian ad tech company that was a unit of Sparebank. And after the Ukraine uh, invasion, Sparebank was put on a sanctioned list and all of its subsidiaries. Well, uh, RuTarget was one of those subsidiaries. It's also known as Segmento, and it was receiving consumer data even though from Google, even though it was a, um, a sanctioned company. So that's um, that was one incident. This in September, Biden um, signed an executive order to look into foreign firms' use of data for the surveillance, tracing, and targeting of people. Um, so that's just a couple examples. TikTok is another one that people point to. Is it malicious? People would say, no, it's entertaining, but there's enough uh, connections to surveillance in China, and there's a national intelligence law of 2017 that requires citizens and companies to assist in state intelligence work. And I probably don't need to, to, to tell you, there's enough articles about TikTok where there have been some unusual activities going on with their chief auditor and trying to get access to US data in Oracle servers. So not to say... Uh, I'm, I am just an individual. Uh, I am just repeating back what um, many of us can read about. Um, uh, the, Google and TikTok can find themselves in hot water, but it's they're not being malicious necessarily. Um, it can be others associated with those businesses or third parties that would re, that could receive a lot of value from the data that's collected. Sure. So, to the extent that he whether whether i mean whether this is a uh you know a, a goal of 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 yours or of, of your organizations but in identifying these organizations that could be levered you know using this data or, or capturing this data in in potentially malicious ways um have you seen attempts from any of these organizations or do you think it's possible that these organizations will begin to develop ways of of, I guess, circumventing your detective mechanisms, uh, you know, sort of an, I don't know, I don't know if you're, if your technology, if you have like a name for the, for your technology, um, but you know, anti that, right. Anti bolt, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, 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 you know, so they, so they don't get caught essentially. Yeah, there are, there are ways. Uh, so the, in, some of them are very nascent, right? So the third party cookie isn't being fully deprecated until late 2024, I think Q3 of 2024, but from Google Chrome. There's many other places that the, the, you know, Firefox and Brave and others that have deprecated it already, but the cookie is still around. In, in the wake or in sort of anticipation of that, there's a lot of ID solutions that are being proffered out as ways to replace the cookie. ID solutions could, ha could have a login basis to them. They may have protections like a hash, but those would create their own identifiers. And how those identifiers get set up could be similar to, or could even go 
uh, and be less privacy uh, protective than the third party cookie. We just don't know. And there's hundreds of them out there. So there's many, many that need to be vetted and tested. But um, I think that that notion of that, are there going to be ways around how our technology works? Well, just like anything, we'll, uh, innovations will come up, we'll develop ways to read those innovations, and then there'll be, there'll be different ways of doing the same thing that we'll have to catch up to. Um, that's, I think that's just the nature of things, that there will always be other identifiers because there's way too much money being made in hyper-targeting to say that's just simply going to go away. We're not going to go back to a world where the web is just like reading a magazine and everybody sees the same ad because that's not gonna make money to provide the free content that we want. And it's a condition that the world's advertisers um, aren't gonna be comfortable going back to either. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to compare it to another domain with an infosec, you know, you're familiar with malware and you know, obviously, so there's on the security practitioner side, there's people who, what they do all day is reverse malware. And yeah. now malware authors to, you know, up the game have anti-reversing tricks that they, you know, plug into their malware to make it harder for the malware reverser. So I'm curious, like, you know, obviously there will always be this, this cat and mouse back and forth game where, you know, as, as you know, people who seek to do this maliciously, you know, try to circumvent the, 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 you know, detective or security technologies that come out there. So I was just curious if you had seen anything and it sounds like, you know, Potentially, but it'd be such a niche thing, perhaps. I mean, nation state level actors creating ways to circumvent being identified as those who are you know, capturing this data. We have a, a whole core business around um, malvertising or anti-malvertising, which we haven't even had a chance to talk about yet. But sure. that's um, that's when there are dangerous payloads stuffed into ads that, that do other things. And they can be Trojans, they can be redirects, they can uh, send you to malicious sites and that is a cat and mouse game because these are very sophisticated bad actors there um in my last company um at g2 we found the same thing that these cyber criminals create syndicates and they have specialized division of labor so one person builds the websites the other person's involved in procurement someone else does the online marketing in um in in malvertising it's similar sort of product development we find in some of these malvertising ads that there's um there's uh, communications sent back to the originators of the uh, of the ads to see how they perform so they can optimize them. Um, we see um, other ways to sort of work around. We we find in in the markup in the code that um, some malvertisers will look for our scripts to see if we're present and then render a different safe ad when they see us. So we have found ways around that. Um, so we are we do live in the world of malware. Uh, for a whole chunk of our business and and have to get into that arms race that you're talking about. So, yeah, that's really interesting. So from a malvertising perspective, are the way that, you know, to the extent that you can, you, you feel like sharing some of the your secret sauce, um, are you looking at like a, a white, like uh, more of an anti antiviral approach where you're looking at sort of signatures or do you have sort of a more behavioral model for identifying things that look like malvertising, like sending certain types of telemetry back or command and control or, um, mm -hmm. you know, no, or, you know, I guess that's more signature, but like an unknown, like subset or known database of things that, that known malvertisers use. Yep. So we do both. So we have static and dynamic analysis sure. and we also have scanning and blocking. So on this side of our business through our static and dynamic analysis, 
we can uh, we we can we use our deny list, which we're constantly updating for new signatures that we know are problematic. But we also have other methods where we can um, more to your behavioral side, where we actually render the ad in a safe sandbox, see what happens, and then stop it there um, by uh, by protecting that from the user experience. So there's a there's a couple of ways that we um, that we approach that. There's a couple of ways that we um, that we stop those malicious ads. But um, I think the the it, it does go beyond that because definitions of malvertising sometimes are specific to malware and other times they take on more of terms of service violations. So some ads will present content that are inappropriate for certain audiences. So you imagine educational sites don't want to have any vaping ads, right? Or um, faith-based sites don't want to have um, revealing swimwear ads or uh, a big marketplace online may not want to have any Amazon ads. So there's, there's lots of other ways that we analyze the ad content to make sure that it's not going into the wrong places. And these can have many customized angles to them too. Sure. So from a, I guess from a delivery perspective, how, how are you sandboxing and, and running those ads prior to delivery, like on the website itself? Well, we'll take a certain portion of them. So with our scanner, right? So we're scanning the web, uh, our, our blocking uh, is protects about a trillion impressions uh, per year, but our scanning goes goes broad too. And when we're scanning the web and we discover ads we haven't seen before, then we'll take those offside and and uh, and run those and see if there's any danger in them. And that helps inform us um, because because of the way the scanners operate. The blocking, which is a, uh, which is often an on-page script, then that benefits from that and stops the ad from loading and replaces it with a good ad. Sure. Do you use any of the data that you collect? about either known or, or newly discovered malver malvertising campaigns or malvertising actors to information sharing groups or other CTI sure. providers? Yeah, yeah. So there's a, a tag group that we're a part of that we share what we find um, with the broader market so that they look out for them. We also have malware reports. We're just about to put out our quarterly malware report for the kind of patterns that we're seeing and the, the things to watch out for. So we both through through private groups of, of uh, security professionals and then more generally available for businesses, we communicate that out. Sure. And what about, I guess, what about influencing policy? Um, I mean, I see that you guys have a blog, um, but are, are, do you have other connections? Maybe not you personally, but but Boltiv or, or organizations that, that you guys associate with do any sort of lobbying or, or and try to influence policy in any way? We um, we don't have any agenda on influencing policy, but um, I've spoken in front of the FTC and the California Privacy Protection Agency um, and uh, going to be speaking in front of another state and also have spoken to uh, other attorney general's offices just about what we find and what's out there just to, to educate. Because this, this is a technical problem. This is back to privacy. Right? There's, it's a technical problem, but most of the rulemaking comes from those that are steeped in compliance and legal areas. And so there's, there's aspects of technology and even aspects of changing in technology that's useful um, for the lawmakers to understand better or the law enforcers to understand better. So we don't lobby, but we do educate because we think it's in the, in the best interests for the best laws to be written. Um, it's not fair to put a burden on businesses to do things that are infeasible for them to do, but we also don't want to create um, a gap between how privacy loopholes are being created and the ability for regulators to understand them and and write laws that are more appropriate for them. Sure, understood. So from an edu, so 
uh, keying on your, you know, just education perspective um, or, or objective, what would you recommend either what maybe what you do personally or just what you would recommend for general public use in terms of their technology and whether it's browser plugins or specific kind of browser or other things that they can do now to protect their privacy as they browse online. Yeah, um, I think for, yeah, for users and what I, given the sophistication of your audience, these may be things that, that uh, listeners already know, but I'll just say when people ask me this question, I think starting with your mobile device, how do you protect yourselves? Starting with your mobile device, you know, certainly turning off app tracking if you're on iOS, delete unused apps. Uh, for your browser, there are certainly privacy safe browsers out there like Brave and Ghostery Dawn and, and Firefox has some advantages. Deleting unused browser extensions is a good pattern to go through, just like uh, deleting unused apps. Considering what search engine you're using and DuckDuckGo being a good recommendation there. I don't have connections to any of these companies, by the way. They're just sure. um, ones that I would I would suggest using. Uh, using a secure VPN if you want to hide your IP address. Anonymized email. I know that has its has its merits, but um, you know it's it's kind of hard to split the difference in social media. If you're going to be on social media, you're data is going to be harvested. There's no way around it. The, the only way around it is to not be on social media. So um, I, I think that's that's what I would recommend. And um, some people go so far as to remove their information from people searching websites or to block all scripts from running on their browser. Um, but, you know, that's those are the those are the steps that I would go to. I think it's worth mentioning that um, it, the, the things that I'm describing used to be what only the most knowledgeable people would do to protect themselves it's becoming more mainstream to want to uh, raise up shields against data sharing because with the dobbs decision earlier this year which reversed roe versus wade and that that was really a privacy um reversal more than it was specifically around abortion that um your your data isn't going to be kept from third parties, from law enforcement. In fact, that personal data that we're talking about has been used in, in law enforcement cases before. And certain states will uh, very very well may go to the grounds of using the location data and, and um, app data that's resident in some uh, certain websites and apps like period tracking and use that as evidence in prosecutions related to DOPS. So it, it is good for, I think, more and more people to be aware of ways to protect themselves from data sharing. Yeah, that's a great note. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of people, the, you know, security and privacy conscious people who take the time to try to understand their own personal threat model and what tools they can use to protect themselves online. It's important to revisit that threat model especially on, you know, when there's, you know, things like, like overturning certain laws that, that, uh, you know, could result in the situation that you just explained. Um, so certainly important to, to sort of understand your own threat model there for, for people, I guess, is there any like baseline for people who let's say they have no real privacy related concern, but, 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 you know, you want to recommend like two things that they do like top two things like even if you have no concerns this is probably good just in general because it it protects you in the future um just from data that could be collected over time that's hard to remove from the internet later i think it's number one to be aware to um 
to know that the what you think is innocuous can sometimes um, end up be damaging. And the other is to to to, to really kind of relate to that is, is pay attention when you see a cookie banner pop up next time. If you're used to sort of reflexively hitting accept cookies, um, hit the other button every once in a while and see how easy it is to opt out of data sharing. It takes less than a second and it does a lot for you. Um, I think though that the awareness and then turning that awareness into actual behavior is is very simple to do at the very at the very initial levels. Sure. Yeah. I I was at a security conference in October of this year, and I went to a talk that was extremely interesting. And it was this uh, a person with a very niche profession. He was essentially an online private investigator, and he used what what amounts to data breaches. He had mass collections of tons and tons of data breaches across the internet, across you know the multiple years that this has been an issue, you know, dating back decades it seems, and he uses those to to basically investigate bad people on the internet. And what I found very interesting about that was this nature of you know data permanence, even in huh. even in even in you know a world where even in a future world where. GDPR related things will allow you to, in theory, delete your data. Companies can delete your data, but if the data is breached, it then gets propagated across the internet. People download it. There's local copies of things. There's things that you you literally can't remove from the internet anymore. Um, and I think it's mm-hmm. important for people to realize that you might not think. And this this goes back to what we were just talking about in terms of understanding your threat model is that data you think might not be important now. Or, or you can be used against you now could could very well be used against you in the future so it's really all about attack surface reduction if you want to if you want to map it back to that and understanding that you might not think it's a big deal but if for it to be out there but if you also don't think it's a big deal for it not to be out there then maybe you should just not have it out there right take the time yeah. to, to reduce your exposure to the internet or the internet's exposure to you I should say mm-hmm. And how much you're willing to volunteer and under what circumstances you're willing to volunteer that because businesses, you know, sometimes you know, it's of a significant size. So, so Twitter got in trouble before its current troubles. <laughs> um, it got in trouble because for two-factor authentication, it collected, I think it was email addresses or phone numbers. And then later it decided to use that information for, for targeting. Well, that was one of the first things that got them, got them in trouble with the FTC, but that was information that was being volunteered for security purposes. And yet it turned around as something that they used for targeting. So you don't know how your data is going to be used. And there's databases, you know, it, there, until recently, there's some databases that are that are append only. There's no deletion. Well, that's changing now because of the uh, the right to delete and other things that are coming out of state laws. But the massive size of databases, information on people, and information that was collected years ago before we have uh, data privacy rules um, that we do today, some of that's still valid, and some of that can still be used because of, what, of the, when it was collected. Some of it can't be. Some of it you need to uh, give notice and choice before you use that again. But there's through the internet, as you're describing, there's so much data flowing out from us that we don't even realize that being aware of what we're volunteering, um, that's one way to control it. Sure. Yeah. And realizing that, you know, because of the nature of companies sharing data with other companies or, and eventually I think, I think people understand, well, the government might have my data, but the go so the government has, Facebook has my data, the government has my data, but that's where it ends, but it's not that there's a web of people who end up 
Facebook might sell data to, yes, uh, whether good or bad people, right? And that depends on the you know who you are, whether you think they're good or bad. But realize when you give just because you give data one place and you're fine with the fact you know the you know uh, your sense that the government definitely has it because the government has everything. Well, there's other places that might have it too. Well, that's the, why data brokers sometimes get a bad rap. So data brokers exist many times for a good purpose to be a place where you can source data on people if you are using it for positive means, again, finding the products and services that they like. But data brokers can acquire data and they'll aggregate data and they'll um, center it on a, on a profile. Well, that can be purchased by law enforcement and used for prosecution. There's no, there's no rule against that, unlike the amendment against unreasonable search and seizure, which is actually protected, right? That's a direct collection of data. If it's acquired through uh, a data broker, it's completely legal for the government to use that in a prosecution. So being being mindful of that as well, um, and why these laws exist, uh, why the protections must exist so that doesn't get abused, as it has been in some countries. Sure. Are you aware of any database or 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 service like website or something that that offers sort of like the way i'm thinking about it is like a wall of shame of of vendors who are known to have shady whether it be like past uh uh privacy violations or known current practices of you know being selling their data to to, to um you know places that you wouldn't like it to be sold to or or not following their own uh opt-out you know, consent things. Is there any place like that? I've seen a lot of companies that have like wall of shame related to like, they don't have 2FA. Um, and yeah, so, you yeah. know, be careful of these companies because they don't even offer basic security, um, you know, controls that, that you know, modern companies should have. The, the closest thing that I've seen to that, Mike, is the GDPR enforcement tracker. And there you can look up who's getting fined, how much were they fined, which country fined them, how many times have they been fined. Like, there's a lot of transparency coming out of GDPR. And certain countries like Spain are very, very active in this, and even active with small and medium-sized businesses, not just the big fines of like the $800 million that Amazon got or the $350 million that Meta got. But I think the, the, the GDPR um, has been a steady drumbeat of of fines for various data privacy uh, violations that gives you a pretty good list of of at least who's behaving in that in that continent sure i guess it wouldn't make any sense for for you to have something like that because you're trying to sell the platform to people who might be violate who might inadvertently be violating <laughs> things so having a wall of shame is 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 it's a little contrary yeah contrary to our principles but someone will do it i know because there will be enough actions out there sure. to create a wall of shame Sure, sure. So what's the so what's the next like what's next generation boltive or boltive similar look like to you? What's sort of the next big challenge other than awaiting, you know, updates to to, to privacy law um, and and sort of the the technological standards that might come with it? What's sort of the next big evolution for you? Do you see? Well, a, a lot of our on the privacy side, our solution is oriented around the scanning of websites. Um, so a step forward for us is is not just looking at the websites, the inventory of ads, as it's called, but um, actually wrapping the ads themselves and traveling with those ads so that wherever they show up, we can make sure that those brands are not showing up in unwelcome places that disregard consumer privacy. So that's um, that's kind of the next direction for us. But um, other, you know, other than that, the laws are changing so quickly. There's so many new um, responsibilities that um, that companies need to abide by that we're keeping ourselves busy just mapping to what the law says at this point sure yeah i imagine i imagine you know 
thanks to i mean G- gdpr i mean what's 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 a what's the max fine out of that seven percent of global revenue or or something it's fine it's four percent yeah four percent okay so yeah not small especially if you're a company that does a lot of you know multi-billion dollar business that's that can end up being a lot of money there so um definitely a, i i mean i don't know how, how much the bolted platform costs but probably a small price to pay for uh, something that could save you millions. Yeah, that's right. We're we're designed so that the sort of um, privacy scanning um, nature and in, in the finding the um, holes, the 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 cracks in the internet pipes is available for businesses of all sizes. You don't need to be the size of Google or or Meta in order to afford that kind of um, protection. So it's it's a it's a very inexpensive insurance policy, and also more than that the best user experience you can provide. I'll add one other thing, which which is uh, we've discovered with Bolt of consent opt-ins have as many errors as consent, op- consent opt-outs. What that means is you can have consumers who are saying, yes, go ahead, target me, go ahead, share my data. I'm interested in these products and services. But if that consent string gets lost, then the downstream providers don't know to do that. So we've seen revenue losses and we've also seen when opt-outs get garbled, that people are advertising to consumers who have told them to leave them alone, which is about the worst ROI you can ever spend in marketing. So there's this isn't all just doom and gloom and compliance we're talking about here, but knowing consent, knowing who truly welcomes your services and who would rather not see your services has business efficiencies from revenue and cost savings too. Sure. Does, do you guys do any, uh, any, I guess, education to the customers that you serve around... I'm trying to think, I forget there's an exact word for this, but effectively the general modal box fatigue that we all have in terms of, I mean, even take take your iOS device or Android device, whatever device you have, every app you you get, it asks you, do you, you know, do you want to, them to, it to use your GPS? Do you want to use your camera? Do you want to use this? And now you have, of course, across the internet, you go to a new website and you're probably going to get a prompt or multiple prompts asking you, I mean, opt in, opt out, this, that, cookies, something, something, a bunch and, and <laughs> terms that people, a lot, most people probably don't really understand. Um, so in terms of making sure that, you know, companies offer these modal boxes in a way that's, that's gives users the ability to opt in, opt out, but, but does so in a way that is not confusing and that, you know, users don't just click through. I mean, is there any education around that and and having companies develop these in such a way that, you know, customers are really making an active choice? There's a couple dynamics there. One is the, the movement, I think, um, against dark patterns, which deceive and manipulate. And so the movement towards design that just works and allows people to to make their own choices without being steered in a certain direction where they have to click on several more steps to see why they should um, not, uh, why, they sh- why they should opt, uh, uh, avoid just choosing the easy opt-in. Um, on the other hand, the way the laws are moving, it's more and more important to put in your privacy policy everything that you're doing or you might do because if you don't say in your privacy policy what you're doing, and it turns out you do that, and sometimes privacy policies don't get updated for you know, months or years, you can get in worse trouble for misrepresenting to people 
in your privacy policy what you're really doing. So that actually kind of confounds what we're describing here. In as much as we'd like to make it simpler, these privacy policies get longer and longer and disclose more and more and become harder and harder to read through that many people just say, forget it, I don't have time for that. Sure. So that's a hard thing to pull off. It's just like signing any contract when you install software and you have to agree terms and services, right? Do you agree to terms and services? Do you actually read those terms or you just hit the checkbox, I agree and move on? Like 99% of people never read those terms and conditions, just accept whatever it is and move on. We're running into a little bit of that with privacy. But that said, I think there's some good design work being done, um, uh, privacy by design methods that really think early on, how can we create software? How can we create code that minimizes data collection? Those are really good things that are, are making it to the developer um, legions to um, to start this kind of shift left and, and fix the problem upstream. Sure. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts around just like popular or, or educating the general populace around around the downstream effects of, of, of data sharing? I mean, now, I mean, we're in the, the throes of this. Right. And a lot of, you know, there's people who are who've grown up in the Internet age and people who are, you know, like my parents grandparents right they're they don't understand they don't necessarily understand but i don't think there's a lot of education i mean where does the education come from in terms of i think if, if you want to geek out and read more about this stuff well boltive has a nice blog uh that you can visit Boltiv's and check blog. that out. got it yeah, yeah. um but uh, but there's also the future of privacy forum is a think tank that thinks ahead on this um uh the rise of privacy technology just put out a white paper um, the IAPP, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, has a lot of good material on where the rules are changing around privacy. So there, there's good sources out there that are starting to cover more and more of the privacy news because it, it is a lot of news. Sure. Yeah. Well, cool. I, I think that's I mean, I don't know if there's any other stories you wanted to share. I, I definitely went completely off script in terms of what uh what was shared with me in, in terms of all uh, any of the stories that you had that you know we could potentially cover but so i don't know if you had anything else no i think i, I love where we covered today and i would just say if people want to find out more you can visit us at boltive.com i imagine that might be in your show notes um also connect with me on linkedin dan freckling um i post a fair amount on what i observations that i see in privacy um so so check us out there um, i'd love to hear from any of your audience that wants to talk more about this 